Well, everyone talks about it. You can read it everywhere. It's, it's the subject crowds, that, that crowds in almost every article that's written in the newspaper. Uh, you can turn on the news and it'll be discussed in almost every story. And the sad truth is that very few people understand it. Many are in this position, but seldom know what to do with it. Most people in the world want it, but very few achieve it. What's the subject? It's leadership. If you were to ask 10 people to define leadership, you would probably get 10 different answers. Leadership is not power because so many have power, yet no one's following them. Leadership cannot be just a position because many have a position, yet they're not listened to. Leadership has to be influence. It doesn't matter if it's a good influence or not. People will follow those that influence them. One leadership proverb says this, he who thinks he leads and has no one following him is only taking a long walk. <laughs> Most people define leadership as the ability to achieve a position, but if, if no one's really following you, are you a leader? The Bible talks about leadership. First Samuel is a great introduction to the subject of leadership. In this book, we're gonna look at three individuals in their leadership positions. Many different characters are in this, this small book. It's relatively small. It's, it's 31 chapters, but it's only a few pages in your Bible. It'd take you two hours to sit down and read. And we're gonna look at primarily three characters that stand out in this book, Samuel, Saul, and David. This morning, the message is not a normal type of message that you would hear at EBC. Uh, we usually have a passage of scripture and we go through it. But today we're gonna change gears as we begin to study in 1 Samuel. And so we're gonna go through the entire book of 1 Samuel. Are you guys ready for that? 31 chapters. I wanna give you an overview of the book, uh, of, of what the author is trying to give for us. And so we're gonna cover all of it this morning as a flyby of 1 Samuel. And so the outline is real simple. As I said, the three characters we're gonna center on are Samuel, Saul, and David, and we'll look at how God worked in their lives in the book of 1 Samuel, and so we're gonna be flipping through a number of passages, um, so have your Bibles ready or your electronic devices turned on, and we'll, we'll go through the book of 1 Samuel. So before I do, let me pray. God, I do thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to come uh, gather together as the body of Christ and to worship you, and we've worshiped you, God, in song and in prayer and in giving back. And now, God, we have the opportunity to worship you by the preaching of your word, and we ask that you would be honored and glorified by what happens here. God, I ask that you would speak this morning to your people, that you would teach, give understanding. God, I pray that we would see the examples here in scripture of these three men some good examples, some that we should look to copy in our lives and some that we should avoid. Give us understanding, discernment this morning as we look in your word. May you be honored and glorified as we open up the book of 1 Samuel. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. The first is Samuel, a man of God's word. The book opens in chapter one with a plea of Hannah. She's married, but unable to have kids of her own when we learn of her, because the Lord has closed her womb. And Hannah, then in this chapter one, goes to the house of the Lord to worship and to pray, and in that prayer, she asks God for a son. 
And God heard her prayer and gives her a son, and then she calls his son Samuel. In chapter two, we read of Hannah's prayer, which we'll look at more in depth next week, Lord willing. It's a beautiful prayer, which is marked by three distinct things that will be covered throughout the book of 1 Samuel. The first is that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. The second thing that's mentioned in her prayer, and it's throughout the book, is despite human evil, God is still at work. Despite human evil, God is still at work. And the third thing is God will raise up a messianic king. It'll be a rise of a king. Chapter three covers Samuel as a boy. You can read that even as a youth, Samuel had an anxiousness to listen to God. It was a pattern of his life, always wanting to hear, always wanting to obey God's word. He wants to hear from him. He wants to be led by God. In chapter three, verse 10, Samuel says, speak for your servant hears. His, his life is characterized by his devotion to, to hear God and to do what he says. Chapter four begins into the story of, of the drama of this book and the Philistines capture the ark of God and well, this does not go well for them at all. Well, we'll get into this. Chapter five describes the Philistines setting up the ark next to their god, Dagon, and yeah, that was another poor decision. In chapter six, they've had enough, and the ark is then returned back to Israel. But then in chapter seven, like Moses, Samuel led Israel to victory by crying out to the Lord in prayer. It was the Lord who brought the victory. It was the Lord who brought the ark back. It wasn't Samuel, it wasn't the people. And this is the theme throughout the book, reliance on the Lord, trust in the Lord. And Samuel leads the nation repentance as they worship false gods. And this is where Samuel sets up the, the Ebenezer. We, we sing about it in a song. In fact, we sang about it last week. If you were here, come thou fount of every blessing. Does that sound familiar, that hymn? We sang the song and in the second verse it says, here I raise my Ebenezer, Hither by thy help I've come. Have you ever wondered what that means, the Ebenezer? Well, it's 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. It says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. In Hebrew, Ebenezer means stone of helping. And Samuel sets it up to remind God's people that the Lord is the one who helped them at this location. It was set there to, to draw their eyes and their minds and their hearts to remember who God is and what God did. So things are moving and progressing in this way. The people seem to be responding, but then we come not, not too long after this rousing victory and the praising of the Lord, we come to chapter eight and the people ask for a king. Now, this is a significant request. This would be the, the greatest difficulty in Samuel's life. He, he struggles with this and turns to the Lord and the Lord's response is one worthy to pay attention to. Look at 1 Samuel chapter eight, verse seven. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now Samuel, I can understand the struggle as a leader, when you're following the Lord, you're seeking to be obedient to him and the people that follow you and your leadership then reject what you're saying. It can feel like a personal rejection, but the Lord is now redirecting him again to who the, direction, reje the rejection is really happening to. They're rejecting God. 
Their request of a king is showing that they do not want God as their king. They desire to follow the pattern of the other nations. Samuel warns them of their foolish desire, but they're persistent in their idiocy. And the Lord responds. He says, the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Now this impacted me this week to think through this. I mean, think about this for a moment. Have you ever considered that sometimes God will give you what you want as a means to bring punishment in your life? I mean, I'm being serious here. This causes me to pause when I pray to God. You know, God, I really want to enter this contest to, enter, to, to win a brand new Chevy Silverado. Right? What's wrong with a new truck, right? And God says, no, that's not good for you. And I, if I persist in this, no, God, it really is good for me. Let me list for you all the reasons why this is really good for me. God may say, yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. And you'll find out it's really not good for you. God does this in the life of his people. He does it here, who persisted to have a king. Because everyone else has a king. It seems from the outside, it looks, it looks great. The grass is greener on the other side. So we want it too. And God said, I'll give it to you. We do this as parents too, don't we? We know what a wise decision is for our kids. And, and yet our kids, as they get older, are determined. That no, this is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I want. And we say, okay, we'll allow it to happen. And recognizing that they will suffer because of the consequences of decisions. God does this in the life of a believer to remind us that, that we're still under the sovereignty of God. We tend to forget it. And this is going to be a big lesson for the people to learn in the book of 1 Samuel. In chapter 9, Samuel obeys God and finds Saul. And in chapter 10, Samuel anoints Saul as the next king. And throughout this, Samuel is marked by a heart to know and obey God. That's his heart throughout this. He has from the very beginning been a man who seeks to listen to God. He is a man of prayer, a man of obedience to God. The life of Samuel embodies the word that he speaks to Saul in chapter 15. He says this, to obey is better than sacrifice. Chapter 15, verse 22. He is a man given to hearing God's voice and then sharing that with others. His name even means God hears. Because this is what's happened when God heard the prayer of his mother, Hannah. He is a man of prayer and a man of God's word. He obeys God's words and strongly encourages others to do the same. And you can, you can hear the respect from the people that they have for Samuel and the love that he has for the Lord in chapter 12, one of the, the last words to his people. Turn with me and follow as I read 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel 12, starting verse 19, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. 
and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Samuel is not the main subject of this book, even though his name is listed here, but he, he does exemplify for us some of the best characteristics of a godly man and godly leadership. It's hearing God's word and speaking God's word and obeying God's word. And I wonder this morning if this is important for your life as well. If you're here, my friend, as a non-Christian, you may think that this has no bearing on your life, and you're wrong. The Bible is clear that every single human on planet Earth is obligated to know and obey God. You're not exempt because of your religious preferences. God is not tolerant of your religious preferences. There's a standard, and God is the judge of that standard. And you will give an account of your life. Whether you believe in Muhammad or Buddha, God will call us to give an account of everything. Are you ready to give an account? Are you prepared? Now, there's only life through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes into a relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. One amen. Come on. No one comes. That is the gospel. That is the hope. That's what we sing about. That's what we praise God about. That's why we are here. And for the believers that are here this morning, I want to encourage you to follow the example of Samuel. He is a picture for us of a Christian's life. He is a man of prayer and a man of the word. Are you? Do you display a rich prayer life that Samuel does here? an eagerness to obey God's word and follow through with what it says. Can I give you some practical application and some encouragement this morning? First, I want to encourage you to just pray. If you haven't already, sign up for the, the prayer chain for our church here. And when those prayer requests come through, just pause in the middle of your day and, and pray for those needs. Spend those moments re requesting God to answer the needs of our people. You can also download the app that we have or go online of the church directory where everyone listed of our church is there. And you could spend your day a few minutes every morning just praying through the church directory. It doesn't matter if you know them or not. Just pray the name and ask that God would work in their lives. I mean, it helps to know them personally. Maybe that will encourage you to get to know people and come up and say, I didn't know you last week, but I prayed for you. But spend some time in prayer this week. Secondly, I want to encourage you to to read and study the scriptures. I don't know if this is an issue in your life or not, but maybe you just need to stop watching TV. Just turn it off for a period. If you're stuck in front of the television for countless hours, turn it off and, and get your Bible out and read. We should be reading our Bible on a regular basis. You know, some of you, I might step on toes, and that's all right. Some of you would never, ever consider missing a Seahawks game. But do you feel the same way about reading the scriptures? I, I'm not a Seahawks fan. I am a football fan, and that cuts to my heart too. Am I, am I so willing to set aside everything else in life so I can make sure I can watch the game? Am I, do I feel that way, the same way about reading the Bible, about spending time in his word? And I'm not saying don't watch football, okay? I want you to rejoice and enjoy football, okay? But keep the main thing the main thing. You know, if you don't know what to read, you can grab one of the sermon schedules. We have them in the foyer. We put these out every quarter, and it lists 
what's gonna be preached on the next Sunday. So if you're unsure what to read this next week, Lord willing, we're gonna be in 1 Samuel chapter one through chapter two, verse 11. Read through the passage multiple times. Come prepared. You've been in the passage all week, so have I, to hear what God's word says for you. Spend time reading the Bible. Soak yourself in the word. Become a person who is shaped by the word of God and, and then obeys the word of God. You know, here's some alarming stats that I came across this week. Barner Research pointed out that Mormons are more likely to read the Bible during a week than most Protestants. Even though most Mormons don't believe that the Bible is the author, the, really God's word to them. They don't believe that. They don't believe that, and yet they read it. It shouldn't be that way. Friends, we, we as the church should be in the word, reading it continually. We need to have the word to be the center of our lives. This is why the pulpit is in the center of the stage. Have you ever wondered that? It's, it's, the, it's the word. This is why the, the sermon is in the center of the main weekly worship service. And the entire service is planned so that we can hear God's word. It's that significant. It's that important for us. We don't do it out of tradition. We do it because we love God. We sing songs of worship of God because we get our worship from the word. We understand who he is from the word. And so we sing in response to that. So may we be like Samuel in our lives, that we'd love the word, that we'd be eager to, to read it and obey it. So we love God's word, we read it, we soak it in and we know it and we look to be obedient to what God's word says for us. This is Samuel. This is who he was. Well, the second character that is seen through the book of 1 Samuel is the character Saul. This book is more about Saul, the life and the end of Saul than anyone else. But you don't hear anything about this guy until Samuel chapter nine. And so the second point is Saul, an impressive man. Turn to chapter nine, look at verse two. Samuel now on a mission to find the king that's been asked by the people and reaffirmed by God, find Saul. And 1 Samuel 9, 2, he says, and he, he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He was an impressive man. I hear that height is a big deal. I don't buy it. You know, today height means that it's just hard to find clothing that fits. I'm just speaking from experience. It means I have to sit in vehicles and kiss my knees. You know, it's literally how it is every time I get in someone's vehicle. Uh, it, you should be, feel sorry for me when I fly. It's horrific. So height now doesn't mean much. I mean, I can help my wife in the kitchen by reaching things way high, right, Katie? But that's about it. You know, height seems to be important for sports, but... Really, that's the extent of it, but not so when we come to the time period of 1 Samuel. To be tall was a thing of honor. In chapter 10, Saul is chosen and anointed as king, and he was an oppressive man. In chapter 11, he defeats the Ammonites, which brings greater admiration of Saul as their new king. The hope of Saul now was strong. In chapter 10, verse 24, Samuel speaks of him to the people. In verse 24, he says, and Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. 
Saul was an impressive man. They thought highly of him. The shocking thing as you read through the book is that after that great victory in chapter 11, the pinnacle of honor for this king, you might think that it would continue, that it would just continue to build, but it doesn't. His downfall comes quickly. And the next 20 chapters, the next 40 years of his life chronicle the end of of Saul. And it's not pretty. You know, Saul is an impressive man, but he's more impressed with himself than anyone else. You know, he bought the line when everyone said about him. He bought a hook, line, and sinker. I am impressive. There are three huge character flaws in the life of, of Saul. First, he was dishonest. Second, he was prideful. And third, he lacked integrity. All three are seen throughout this book in in Saul's life. And you cannot be a good leader if you have these three issues. And Saul had the trifecta. It seems that he would take God's word in into himself when Samuel would come and he would listen to what God says. He would then reshape it. He would want to make it to his own liking. He would hear it, but it wasn't good enough for him, so he would, he would adjust it. And this is dangerous, friends. You know, this is the plight of so many American churches today, taking God's word in and adapting it to their own liking. And in chapter 13, Saul disobeys Samuel's command to wait for Samuel to come before the offering. You know, waiting would have shown that Saul trusted in the Lord, but he trusted in himself. He was worried in that chapter, in that story. He was worried what the men would think of him. When Samuel comes, he rebukes Saul and tells him at this point, your time as king is over. In chapter 14, Jonathan, Saul's son, attacks the Philistine army and God sends a panic. So Israel wins because of God. And in chapter 15, Saul yet again disobeys God's clear commands. And Samuel confronts him after he sees the monument that was set up for guess who? Himself. And he chastises him again. You know, another mistake after mistake by Saul. This one is huge in chapter 15, one that will affect the nation of Israel for many years after. And Saul basically confesses his wrongdoing to Samuel in chapter 15, but yet listen to his words. Chapter 15, verse 30. Not sure if he really is repentant or not. Chapter 15, verse 30 says, Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Yeah, I've done what what you said. I did do this wrong, but but please honor me. I want to save face. You know, it's clear where his heart is. He is worried so much about what people think of Saul. And he could care less what God thinks. Saul is prideful. He's dishonest. He lacks integrity. Those three traits are not what you want in a leader, right? The situation in chapter 15 sets the stage for Saul's complete downfall in the rest of the book. We read about David for the first time in chapter 16. We'll talk about him more in the next point. But this next step of the removal of Saul for David causes much distress for Saul, much anguish. 
In this, as you read through, you, you realize that Saul is tormented by jealousy. He's completely ruined. He hates that he's being removed. He hates that he's, he's now getting pushed aside for David. And so what does he do? Well, he seeks to kill David. At one point, Saul's jealousy and obsession to remove David causes Saul to kill 85 Israelite priests because one had helped him. He seeks to wipe out everyone in his path. You know, this, I couldn't help but think Saul is a lunatic in this passage throughout this section. He will literally do anything to save face. And the ironic thing is Saul is the leader of God's people and yet he becomes the opponent of God's will. He is spiraling out of control. You know, later in chapter 28, he consults a medium, a, a witch. Not good. At the, and the end of his life comes in chapter 31 when Saul will kill himself. His, his life is tragic. He is controlled by pride. And listen, proud people never prosper in God's economy. Pride will always be destroyed. Pride is conflicting to the Christian life because it takes glory that belongs to God and keeps it for itself. And all this, Saul displays properly what the kings of Israel were. In the years that will follow, those kings will lead the nation to not greater obedience to God, but to greater and greater disobedience from God. Yet they will not lead the people to freedom from the surrounding nations as God had done through the judges, but it will lead to oppression from them. And remember, this is what the people asked for. We want a king like the other nations. They want to be like the other nations. They don't want to be distinct. They want to be just like them. And Saul leads them to a deeper, farther away from God. The people will marry foreign wives and worship foreign gods and ultimately find themselves ruled by foreign kings. And how ironic that the people who, who Joshua led into Canaan to be a witness to the nations just becomes a pathetic imitation of them. And pride is the root of all of this. It is the great sin. Pride is what destroyed Satan. The Bible teaches us that by nature, you are prideful. You're lost. You're unable to save yourself. You know, no matter what people say, you, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Now, have you heard the American-based sentiments that God helps those who... That's not in the Bible, just so you know. It's a, it's a bold-faced lie. You cannot help yourself. You need God to step in. You are at enmity with God. And God is at enmity with you. You need someone to come and step in. You have sinned against him. And even if you were to change today, even if today was the day where you say, I'm going to change my life and, and go this direction and try to, to will your way to obedience, you would still have your past that you could never deal with. And no matter what the world says, good deeds don't wipe away bad deeds. You know, Eli spoke of this in chapter 2 when dealing with the sins of his own sons. 
In 1 Samuel 2, 25, he says, if someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And the answer we have comes in 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. Friends, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you need a mediator, you need Christ. You need a rescue. You need to confess and agree that you're a sinner and your desperate need of Christ's saving work in your life. You need to confess your pride in thinking that you can save yourself. You can't. He is your only hope in this life. And Christians this morning, pray that God will show you how you wrongly rely on yourself as well as how other people perceive you to be. Don't trust in that. Don't be like Saul. Who, who spurned a relationship with God, but begged Samuel to act in a way that would make Saul look like he had a relationship with God. I mean, he's a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite like him. Hypocrisy hurts no one more than the hypocrite himself. So how can you work to protect yourself against this? I wanna give you some practical advice this morning. And maybe this will step on your toes but the first thing is become a member of a local church. Covenant together with other like-minded believers and membership. You're letting yourself be known to other Christians. You're, you're opening up your life. You're, you're risking privacy by inviting others into your life. So let other people, other Christians in this congregation become so central to you in your life. And the next thing you need to do is to drop the wall of pride. Share with other Christians just maybe a few things of areas where you struggle, your weaknesses, and seek prayer for those things. You know, join a care group. Walk with one another in this life. Share your joys and share your struggles. You know, and this goes for everyone, not just members, but pastors and elders and deacons. You know, it's easy to, to walk this Christian life all alone and trying to impress people with your good behavior. That I'm fine. I'm fine. And you can put the act on as long as you want, but I don't know about you, I'm a human and I know I'm not always fine. And so we need to start putting to death your reputation and your, your love for what others think of you. You're not perfect. We all know it. Guess what? I'm not perfect either. We're not fooling anyone. So I want to encourage you to, to join, to be a part of this, this body, to love one another, to pray for one another, to be humble with one another. And we should avoid being like Saul. And instead, we should be like David. David's the, the third and final character in the story. And David is a man after God's own heart. You know, he's our example in this book. You know, if, if Saul is an impressive man, David is an impressed man. He doesn't think too much of himself, but he's most definitely impressed with God. In the book of 1 Samuel, Dan, uh, David cannot get over God. He, he can't get over God. He is consistently impressed with his Lord, and he's consistently concerned with the glory of God. 
with the, his name and his activities and his purposes and his glory and his fame. That's his, his desire, his focus. He's focused on God and not himself. And he's exactly the leader that God's people need. A man who is preoccupied with God. This is what his, his people need to learn. And, and this is seen so clearly in the famous story of David and Goliath. I am positive that every person seated here this morning has heard this story, David and Goliath. Raise your hand if you've never heard of David and Goliath. All right, good. And usually this story is, is used as an analogy for all sorts of situations. How many of you know what, 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 what kicked off yesterday? Anyone know? Eric Nyberg. College football. I'm glad that you brought that up, Eric. And every year... In college football, especially in the first week or two of the season, this analogy is, is brought out by the world, David and Goliath. In fact, five years ago, this analogy was brought out when a small school in West Virginia, Appalachian State, went up against a powerhouse, Michigan, David, Goliath. Do you know who won? David did. It beat Goliath. And that was the big story. Michigan lost. Everyone rejoiced. At least I did. I'm a Michigan State fan. I don't care about Michigan. The little guy won. The big guy lost. And, and everyone thinks this is what the story's about, but that's not what it's about. Now look at the story. Turn to Samuel 17. Verse 23 of 1 Samuel 17, it says, As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's health free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so it should be done to the man who kills him. Well, David then later says he's going to go fight Goliath. And this is what his response is. You're not able to go against this Philistine. This is Saul's response to David, actually. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David knows why he can fight him. Look at verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and his uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then a few verses later, David heads out the battle of, to Goliath there. Look at verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, 
and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Did you hear in that what made David so angry with this encounter with Goliath? It wasn't that he called him a dog or mocked him in some way. No, verse 45, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And I'm sure the insults might have hurt him a little bit, but nothing hurts more than dishonor of God. David is angry because of what is being said about his Lord. And you catch where his confidence comes from in this? The Lord who will deliver me. The point of the story isn't to lift up David. That's why the author says, again, there was no sword or javelin. It was just this. It was just a small boy and a, and a rock. Because the power wasn't in the boy. The power wasn't in the rock. It was God. It's all about God. It's not about him being true to himself. It's not about David's incredible courage. It's about the power of God. And if you think it's about David and his courage, you're reading it wrong, and you probably need to go back to that Sunday school class that you taught 10 years ago and apologize. That's not what it's about. It's not about pulling yourself up from your bootstraps and putting on a strong face. It's, it's about... Reliance on God, faith in him. It's God who wins the battle. And what is it of David in this story? It's his faith and his confidence in the God that he serves. He knows that God is the point. He knows that God is the one who supply what's needed. And this is who David is in the book of 1 Samuel. When chapters 18 and 19 Saul's jealousy spills over in a pursuit of David to kill him. In chapter 20, David establishes a friendship with Jonathan. In chapter 21 and 22, David establishes friendships with, with the priests. And I'm moving quickly here, but chapters 23 and 24 is the pursuit yet again to kill David by Saul. And now David has a life of running. Now, do we have any idea what he's experiencing here? Is there any way that we can find out what David's going through? Well, we have the Psalms time period where David spills out of what's going, going on. Psalm 18, Psalm 52, Psalm 53 and 57 display for us what David's going through. Here are just a few words from the Psalms. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. And the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from the, your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And there it is yet again, a theme throughout David's words. He's trusting in someone other than himself. Did you catch that? The 
power does not belong in David. He trusts in God. And I believe David's then tested of this. Do you really believe this, David? Because in chapter 24, David gets an opportunity to deal with Saul, to take care of his accuser, to take out the one that's pursuing him. He has the perfect opportunity to kill Saul. And as you read through the book, as you read through it, and I had a chance to a couple times now to get to this point in the climax of the story, you think, this is great. David now has the opportunity to, to take out Saul who is a threat to his life. You, know, you remember in chapter 16 when he's now established that he would be king and he's heard the lies of Saul, the deceit, the evil, that he's seeking to kill David. And you come to chapter 24 and it looks as though David has been given now the perfect opportunity to take out Saul. I mean, he's been promised the position, right? So let's, let's eliminate the guy that's in the way. And Saul is out looking for David and he takes a break of all things, to relieve himself in a cave. It's a potty break. We say potty in our house. Potty break. And he chose the cave that David is in with his men. And Saul has no idea. And David's own men are sitting there saying, this is your opportunity. And David doesn't do it. He doesn't kill Saul. And from the world's vantage point, it seems as though he missed the opportunity. He didn't strike when the iron was hot. It seems as maybe from the world's view that he chickened out. But listen to David's words about this. He says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And David's not so foolish to think that Saul's innocent. He's not saying that but he will allow the judgment to be in the hands of the Lord and not himself. He knows his place and he submits himself to the sovereignty of God. He knows in, who is in complete control of all this. 1 Samuel 24 verse 12 says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. This is after he comes to Saul and tells him about the opportunity he had and that he didn't take. And then again, the same situation happens again in chapter 26, and, and David, again, doesn't kill him. And the world may think that David is weak, but I believe he displays what true strength is. He's showing us faith. He knows that he answers to God alone. And in all of this, David is guided by the fear of the Lord. And you may be in the same situation in life. You know, maybe you're not pursued like someone's going to kill you. I, I hope that isn't the case for you. But maybe someone's pursuing you in different ways and, and evil against you. They're taking something that belongs to you. They're hurting your reputation. They talk about you. They try to pull you down. They're seeking in some way to destroy who you are, what you have. And I want to encourage you to be like David. He knew the one who was in complete control. He, he didn't need to run down all the evil things that were happening to him. No, he, he continued on to serve his God. He trusted God. You know, in the last five chapters of the book, David lives among the Philistines. Think about that. The only place that is safe for David is with the enemy of Israel. 
And then in chapter 31, the book concludes with the death of both Jonathan and Saul. You know, there's more to David's story, but it doesn't come till 2 Samuel. But I want you to appreciate the portrait of David that we have here in 1 Samuel. He's presented just as a king should be. He is the greatest king of Israel. He is the opposite of Saul. He is not consumed with himself, but he's consumed with his Lord. And maybe you're here this morning, you're not used to hearing so much talk about God. You might have attended a church that constantly gives you five steps to being a better husband or three keys to reach your community. But listen, friends, I don't have to know you personally to know that God is your only hope. God has done for you what is impossible for you on your own. You know, many years later, there will come a man from the lineage of David, and he is the promised king coming to rescue his people. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And is incredibly significant. In Jesus, God became a man and lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. And yet he was nailed to a cross to take the penalty for our sins. He did this not just for me, but for everyone who will repent and trust in him. Have you turned away from your former life and now trusting in Christ? You know, if you want to know more about this, this is why we're here. This is why we exist, to preach the gospel, to share the gospel. And so we, we want to share with you, or you can ask the friend that invited you to church to talk through it, or one of us pastors or elders will be at the door following the service. This is why we're here. Any Christian here will most definitely desire to talk with you about the gospel. And David really is a powerful example, isn't he? You know, the book of 1 Samuel talks about the people's urgent request for a king. They wanted to be like the nations around them. And then the tragic results follow. This was bound to happen. You know, the Lord had promised Abraham in Genesis 17 that kings would come from him. And in Deuteronomy, the Lord had made a provision for a king. And if you think about it, how strange it was to set up a nation at the time with no king. It must have been really strange. They must have been really odd. But wasn't that the point? They were to be distinct, set apart. They left Egypt, survived in the wilderness, conquered Canaan, maintained their independence from other nations for centuries with a unified religion, and they did all of these things with no king. How could that happen? Well, the very absence of the king pointed to the presence of God. That's the point. That's why the, the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are in the Bible. To teach us that God is his people's king. No other king, no other king can finally promise and complete and give an entire deliverance to his people. And when the people in this book request a king, it's the rejection of God as their true king, as their true Lord. I pray that you will not continue in your rejection of the king. We need this king in our lives. This morning, we're going to remember our king. It's our time to remember what Christ did for us on the cross. I had a chance a couple of weeks ago for the church camp out. I usually try to bring a book to read during the downtime that I have. And I chose a, an old Puritan book by Thomas Watson called The Lord's Supper. And so I had a chance to read through it. 
And I wanna read some of what Thomas Watson has for us on the Lord's Supper. I won't list all of it, but he has some points here of how we should come prepared for the Lord's Supper. The first one I wanna mention is we must come with self-examining hearts. This is what he writes. We should examine our sins that they may be mortified, our spiritual needs that they may be supplied, our graces that they may be strengthened. So I wanna encourage you all that elements are being passed later to take time to examine your heart and prepare yourself for the supper together. The second thing he says that I want to list is we must come with humble and believing hearts. We partake of this meal together as believers. This is only for those who've placed their faith in Christ and we come humbly. Recognizing our need for Christ, remembering what Christ did for us and come believing that he's our only hope. The third thing I want to mention is we must come to the Lord's Supper with longing hearts. Watson writes, holy desires are the sails of the soul which are spread to receive the gale of a heavenly blessing. We come to this table longing to know Christ more, to, to celebrate him more, to honor him more and what he's accomplished for us on the cross, rejoicing more, praising more. We come longing for our Savior more and more. So as the elders come now forward to pass out the bread and the juice, I'm gonna ask you to spend some time preparing your hearts. I'm gonna pray now and then the men will pass out the bread to be remembered of Christ. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to celebrate you and your work for us on the cross that you died for us, you paid the penalty for our sins, and that you rose again. That help us as we partake of this, to be prepared. If there's any sin in our life, Father, I pray that we would confess it to you, turn away from it, and live for you. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.